You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview founders, operators, and investors at the cutting edge of business. I'm your host, Ramin Shad. In 2018, Uber is a household verb. The company is on an absolute tear. Uber is evolving from a ride-sharing company into a full-scale transportation business. The company now has multiple business units at multi-billion dollar run rates, and earlier this year, they announced that Uber Eats is at a $6 billion bookings run rate. Excitement around the company is steep. In 2019, we're likely to see an IPO, and the early view on pricing is Uber will enter the public market at over a $100 billion market cap. Back in 2011, however, Uber was anything but a foregone conclusion. The company had raised a small Series A, and the incumbent taxi industry threw everything they had at the business. Fights were prevalent in every market, but the battle in New York City was especially high stakes. The world was watching New York, and if Mayor de Blasio succeeded in shutting Uber down, it was only a matter of time before the rest of the world followed on. Founder and then-CEO Travis Kalanick engaged Bradley Tuss to help with the fight. One of the most public and epic battles between private enterprise and City Hall, Bradley ran a genius political campaign that ultimately kept Uber up and running as a business. We unpacked how it all went down in episode 29, so without further ado, Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. So Bradley, I'm excited to have you on today because you have a very unique career story, and I want to dive into Uber pretty deeply. But before that, tell us a little bit more about your background. So the, the, the first part of my career, uh, before I kind of pivoted into tech and venture, was in politics. So I um, spent four years as the deputy governor of Illinois, spent a couple of years on Capitol Hill as Mike Bloomberg, I'm sorry, Chuck Schumer Communications Director, uh, Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager in 2009, and also worked for him at City Hall in his first term. Uh, when I was in college, I worked for Ed Reddell when he was mayor of Philadelphia. Um, had a law degree from Chicago, as you mentioned, but never actually practiced law. Um, and uh, and that was really the first sort of 20 years of my, 15, 20 years of my career, and also was really the basis for how I learned how to do everything that we do now with startups. So the value proposition we have in tech is that we understand how to help startups navigate really complicated political situations. Um, part of that has become get developing a real understanding of technology, of venture, of investing, and all that. But the real value add is that we know how to deal with stuff, and that all comes initially from my experience as government politics. Yeah, and your space is pretty interesting, especially the focus you guys have carved out, carved out because, you know, A, I think it's one of the only shops that actually has a very strong regulatory bent, right, in the space. I think the second thing is it's yeah. actually... It's, only, only one that I'm aware of. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's really, you know, yes, it's about, a lot of it is about understanding the law, right, understanding regulatory schema structures, but a lot of it is just about, you know, people, right? You're not You're not dealing with static institutions, you're dealing... You know, with laws that have people backing them and behind those people, you have all sorts of complex incentive schemes. And I, I think it's really interesting. You've come down pretty harsh on politicians before saying, you know, and I quote, 99% of them are desperately insecure, self-loathing people that need heavy self-affirmation. I, I think that's, I, I think it's funny, but I think it's also interesting, right? Because it, it gets into the psychology of how you think about these people and a, a lot of um, kind of what surface doesn't meet the eye. So talk, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I mean, look, the, the thing that I found in, in the two decades or so that I spent in politics is that with the exception of Mike Bloomberg, everyone I worked for, everyone I worked with, uh, even everyone I worked against, um, all viewed their entire existence and their, and their basically the validation of their life as that they held, they're holding this office, right? And that makes them somebody, it makes them relevant. And 
asking them to live without that relevance is like asking you or me to do without oxygen, right? They, they just can't do it. Um, it, is, it is literally what fills the hole in your psyche. And so therefore, the decisions they make when it comes to policy are solely driven by uh, the political implications of each of those decisions. So let's say you're a Republican congressman from Florida. Now, you probably know that an assault weapon ban is not a bad idea. Um, but uh, if your turnout is 12% in your district, and because your district is gerrymandered, the primary effectively is the general election, um, and half of those voters are NRA members, you're not going to be for assault weapon ban, even though you absolutely should be, right? So, um, so many policy issues are ultimately determined solely by how the elected official thinks it impacts their chances of re-election or not, which means two things. One, it helps explain why it's so hard to get sensible things done. Two, when you do need to get them to approve something or reject something, whatever else it is, you've got to develop a strategy around that thesis, right? It's not have to convince them this is the right thing to do. It's that you have to convince them that they do this, it will help them. If they don't do this, it will hurt them. That's what they care about. I mean, fundamentally, um, every campaign we run, it really is based around that basic premise and that understanding. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's it's the kind of age old you don't get elected to make policy, you make policy to get elected, right? I think that balance is actually not yeah. right, not sought out typically in 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 normal discourse, which often, frankly, as as kind of you know on on the sidelines, it makes it so painfully it makes it so painful to understand what's going on in Washington because so much stuff that seems so common sense never gets done, right? Um, so, so with that, let's let's transition to Uber, right? The story had a bunch of characters, but before getting into them and and kind of getting into the depths of the weed, talk a little bit more about just the context of the situation, right? The facts um, and how you came to be a part of the saga. Yeah, so uh, I was sitting in a meeting. Uh, Walmart was a client of mine. This was I started a consulting firm in 2010. It's about too early 2011. I'm sitting in a Walmart meeting, and a friend of mine called and said, "Hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup." He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? And next thing I know, I'm Oprah's first political advisor. I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, I can't afford your fee. Would you take equity? And I said, yes. <laughs> that was during the Series A. Um, and spent the better part of the next five years just being the shit out of the taxi industry all over the U.S. so that ride sharing could become legal. And, and you know, when Uber was going through all these challenges in 2017, um, while they were often painful for me to have to deal with, uh, one thing that I took pride in was, of, of all the issues and things in dispute, uh, the legality of ride-sharing was never one of them, right? It is right. settled law in the U.S. that ride-sharing is legal, uh, and that happened in 384 different markets around the country. Um, so um, that's something that, that you know, we take a lot of pride in. It was really the, the, our first foray into tech, and I think the thing that we did that ultimately got the most attention is the thesis of how you use your customers and turn them into a political force to overcome the institutional opposition you'll get from an entrenched interest like Taxi, which has a lot of money to make campaign contributions, can hire a lot of lobbyists, plays the inside game really well. So normally, if you're a politician and a donor says, I need you to do this, um, you want to do it because all you care about is keeping their money flowing for your next campaign. And the only reason you won't do it is if you think that it will be noticed and will make enough people upset that it will become a bigger problem for you than the benefit of their donations. So by mobilizing our customers, we were able to, to give politicians the perception that there will be far more harm in stopping ride-sharing and there was benefit in taking taxis' money 
Um, and as a result, we were able to get them to do what we needed them to do. So, uh, so that's, you know, we call that Travis's law. There's a chapter in my book that, that really um, covers this in pretty good detail. Um, but rolling out those customers, we started doing Washington, D.C. in 2012, and kind of kept doing it all the way through, um, really was the basis for how RideShare became legal in the U.S. And then for other startup campaigns that we've run since then, like FanDuel or, or Bird right now, it's the basis for those two. Well, and the way you guys ran the campaign, especially in New York, was was interesting, right? Because, you know, both from a tactical perspective as well as just the sheer aggression, right? Talk about the actual campaign and what you guys to win, did to win against City Hall because it's something that at the outset, you know, obviously wasn't looked upon with high probability. I think it also was particularly interesting because other than taking the kind of left versus right mantra, especially for, you know, to, to handle de Blasio, you guys actually went even more to the left of his position, which is something that I think the political landscape didn't ever envision as a possibility. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, we got lucky that, that we figured out the right strategy and that's ultimately executing it, won it for us. Um, look, in, in New York City, a close vote in the city council is 49 to 2. Um, it is the, the speaker and the mayor hold all of the power. They dictate what, dictate what happens. And when de Blasio decided that he was going to put a cap on Uber drivers, um, and the speaker said she was for it, there was really no doubt that it was going to pass. But I'm not sure that a bill has ever failed when both the speaker and the mayor come on for it. Um, but it would have been incredibly devastating to Uber, both in New York, but also because what happens in New York is seen everywhere. It's kind of the opposite of Vegas. Um, it could have ramifications and, and be copied all over the world. And so we knew we had to win. And yet, statistically speaking, there's no way we should have won. And so we decided to do two things. Well, I remember saying to Travis when he called to tell me that this bill had just, just been proposed. I was sitting in the Dallas airport coming back from a meeting. I asked him, um, how much can I spend? Is there anything I can't do? And to his credit, he said, do whatever you have to do, spend whatever you have to spend. And that really led to the two precepts of the campaign. One, and you let them out. One is we came at it from de Blasio's last. So de Blasio fashioned himself as a progressive champion of inequality, and he's the guy who's standing up for uh, – communities don't normally get as much attention from government, and every fight he does is de Blasio the hero against big, bad, evil corporation, and that narrative works really well for him, and even though I think he's viewed as a very ineffective mayor, um, he's still been off the mayor of Nursery twice, so he, it's worked out pretty well uh, from his perspective, and, you know, playing as that narrative was destined for failure, and it kind of hit me that what de Blasio didn't understand about the situation, because he was so... Cavalier and the taxi was his biggest donor, and he was just trying to take care of his donors. Was that A, uh, it's an industry with a massive institutional history of racism, right? Ask any person of color in New York, almost every city in America, if they ever raise their hand for an open taxi and see them go right by because they don't want to pick them up because of the color of their skin. And two, most Uber drivers, at least in New York, are immigrants. Um, and these are hardworking people who are trying to make it here. And our thought was look, if, if, if you're hurting Uber, you're basically telling people of color that you don't want them to get from point A to point B. Uh, you want to go back to an old racist system. And you're telling all these immigrants that uh, you, they can't make a living anymore. And so the whole campaign came out from the last. And I think partly what worked is that they just had never saw it coming, had no idea what to do. It was so different than they'd ever dealt with before um, that as a result, they couldn't really handle it. We spent $5 million bucks in the course of a month massive amount of TV ads bombarding de Blasio, and then a huge amount of grassroots into every individual council member, phone calls, letters, emails, tweets, visits, rallies, you name it, uh, building up so much pressure 
And it kind of gets back to that earlier point that we discussed, which is your individual council member who normally just does whatever they're told by the speaker, um, sort of realizing, hey, I win my primary with 12,000 votes. I just got 20,000 emails, right, from people <laughs> in my district who I've never even heard of before. Uh, maybe I don't want to piss them off like this. And, you know, one by one, council members started switching from yes to no. And then all of a sudden, we, we still didn't have the 26 votes we needed, um, but we were getting there, and the pressure just kept increasing. And then we got a call from City Hall saying, let's meet. And, you know, we prepared a list of concessions we could make. We figured it would be a negotiation. And all they wanted was the problem to go away. But just, we, we'll pull the bill. You take that your TV out. So I'm like, sure. And that was it. They just, <laughs> they just conceded if they want. <laughs> Uh, that's that's hilarious. I actually didn't know the ending of that was was uh, as point blank. How how would you have played that if you were on the other side, right? So I'm sure you guys have run the thought experiment. You know, one perspective sure. is obviously, you know, take of course, you know, what the taxi commission and mayor should have been doing for years, right? Taxi commission should have seen the writing on the wall, invested in, and partnered with high growth startups. You know, mayor shouldn't have been so beholden to the commission, you know, monetarily and politically. But let's say you take those variables right. out, right? And you say you're yeah, in the ring of what you've got. Two, two, two things, right? One is they should have broadened, instead of just being this deliberate anti-Uber, anti-tech bill, yeah. it should have been a taxi reform bill that had addressed all kinds of things that people didn't like about taxis um, and then hit in there the Uber cap, right? Yep. Um, so that rather than us being the focus of the bill, the, the focus of the bill is trying to improve a bad system. Um, and therefore, it had more would have more public policy validity. They didn't bother to do that. That's one. Two. I think tactically, they just made a huge mistake in that they were so arrogant about their ability to pass the bill that they waited too long. Right? We just they just kept giving me more and more time to keep picking off more and more members, and eventually the mass shifted for that. And had they just ran the bill through, I still think we would have passed. Um, so I think they they played it wrong both from a tactical standpoint and from a conceptual standpoint. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested also in terms of, you know, how this whole kind of issue escalated, right? Because, and I want to go to something, you know, you've said in the past about politicians, which is, you know, they think of themselves as these utopian soldiers, right? Which is they know that some things they do aren't great, but they believe in their heart of hearts that the good outweighs the bad. And I'm curious, you know, in this case, you know, do politicians and the politicians in, in this example was your perception that they told themselves that, you know, this was for the good of the people, right? Was it really as simple as they perceived no, that to be? Or I, 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 think you, I think you're giving them too much credit. Yeah, almost. right. Um, I, I think that fundamentally they look at it and say, what's good politics for me in this situation? Yeah. On everything they do, yeah. right? Yeah. And the vast majority of the time, the public is not focused on any given regulatory issue. And so if the answer is, this special interest that either turns out votes in my primary or had puts money in my race cares about this. The only logical political thing to do is to follow what those groups want, right? Yep. And so that's you know 80% of what politicians do, and it usually works out just fine. The only problem for them is when someone like Uber says no, 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 and they make it such a big public issue and they stand up to them, then all of a sudden they have to scramble and, and retreat. Um, but it gets back to it, and it gets back to the really underlying problem, which is. For as long as turnout in most primaries is below 20%, the system we have is not going to change, right? Yep. If you assume that politicians are always going to just act by whatever inputs they're given to keep their job or stay in office, then if we don't change the inputs, we're not going to change the outputs. So one of the things that we've also done since then, this is out of my foundation, Tusk Montgomery Philanthropies, and thanks to uh, taking my equity in Uber, my friend Pete <laughs> Uber Equity, I have a family foundation now, is I'm trying to create mobile voting so people can vote in elections on their phones because what I found is 
when you give people the ability to advocate politically on their phones, as we've seen with, with campaigns like Uber, they'll do it. The same people who are tweeting for us have never voted in a primary, right? But um, they understood that this thing mattered to them. They didn't want to lose the ability to use Uber or Fandle or Bird or whatever it is. Uh, and we made it really easy to do it on their phone. And blockchain now creates the ability to do it safely and securely. So we are trying to create mobile voting in the U.S. Uh, West Virginia was the first state to do it. They did it there primary and they're doing it again in the general election for deployed military the theory being the people in our military put their lives on the line to defend our right to vote and yet their votes never count because they get mailed in and by the time that they show up you know from kandahar to cleveland or whatever it is you know the election passed three weeks ago and it's already decided so matt warner was the secretary of state of west virginia and was in the military for a long time had been looking for some way to make it um, feasible and easier for members of the military to vote and like this idea of using blockchain, and uh, we funded the state's election costs, which allowed us to avoid the whole complicated RFP process. And it worked. Uh, we ran four security audits. They all came back good. Uh, about a week and a half ago, Secretary Warner announced expansion of the program statewide. Uh, now we're negotiating with other states and cities to roll this out in 2019. So I, I fundamentally believe that the only solution to the underlying problem is to radically increase participation. So if you take the NRA machine gun example I gave earlier, what turns 12%, and half of those voters are NRA members, you know, the elected official can't be for it, right? The turnout becomes 60%, people can vote on their phones, and the NRA's vote share goes from 50% to 10%, all the politics flip completely. So the only way to change the outputs, to change the outcomes, is to change the inputs. And the only way to change the inputs is to increase participation. Yeah, I think it's I think it's especially interesting, especially when you think a lot of the outcomes of a lot of the policy decisions, frankly, that are happening, not just for regulatory and for startups, but just in general in society today. If you actually go back and you look at, you know, what is the percentage of the electorate that's actually represented, either by inputs based on voting or by monetary contribution, et cetera. Um, I think there was a quote about this that someone had mentioned in a TED talk, which was something to the order of, you know, a thousand people in the world basically control democracy for all the rest of us, right? So if you don't fix the inputs, yeah. right, it heavily, heavily yeah. skews in terms of, you know, what outcomes actually come. And I think it's, again, why you find these same sorts of issues. You know, I've, over the last couple of months, I've taken this liking to looking at a bunch of past, you know, political, inspiring political speeches on YouTube. And it's funny because a lot of the best speeches end up saying the exact same five to seven talking points. If you look at every presidential debate, it's the same five to seven talking points, right? So the question becomes what under the hood, when you go under the hood, right, how is the system constructed where if everybody at the superficial level is agreeing on these 10 talking points, right, even if there's a different perspective, but at the highest yeah. level, immigration, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, why is it actually so complicated to get done? Yeah, sure. I mean, immigration is a really good example where if you look at most of the polling, 70% of the country has roughly the same views. Exactly. They yep. don't think we should deport people who are here undocumented. They don't think we should have fully open borders. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a reasonable mix of, of, of ideas. 15% on the far left, 15% on the far right have much more radical concepts around immigration. But because they're the only ones who bother voting primaries, that's where our policy becomes. Guns is another good example. So, yep. um, Frequently, the views of the mainstream are suppressed because the mainstream doesn't vote. We kind of we get the politics we deserve, right? So I'm a New Yorker. Bill de Blasio is a terrible mayor, but in the city of 8.6 million people, he won the 2013 primary with 282,000 votes. He won the 2017 primary with about 320,000 votes. So roughly 4% of the city's population bothered to show up and cast a vote for him. 
and they chose him as mayor, and he, you know, not unintelligently in a way, has governed solely for that 4%. Yep. The exclusion of everyone else, the other 96% on one hand is getting screwed over. On the other hand, it's our fault, right? We don't vote. And if we don't vote, this is what happens. Yeah, I often think if the if the outcome of kind of the last two years of presidency, et cetera, or the silver lining is political activity in, and we'll see in the midterms, right, coming up as well, and in the 2020 election, if, if political, if just raw numbers of activity increases, because I think that's actually the solution to the issue, right? I mean, you look back at the 2016 election, it's not a function of, you know, convincing people uh, of different, of, of different thoughts. It's really, there's just this massive chunk that was in the middle that didn't actually bother to show up and vote, right? That would have dramatically swung, you know, the outcome of the election. Trump effectively in part won because the Republican turnout in the primary was, was relatively low, and there were people who were really polarized and extreme and angry, and they were the pushing through. Yep. And so when you guys are, you know, when you when you went to battle kind of in, and I say battle, you know, literally because it was a battle, and that's, you know, how, how it's been described by yourself, you know, by Travis, Chris Saka, a lot of the other early Uber guys. Right. How do you how do you kind of reconcile or think through the moral argument and the position in the fight? And, and what I specifically mean by that is, you know, from Travis, you know, all the other early Uber guys. Right. It, the, the talk track was always about, you know, how dirty of a fight it was and how dirty it had to be, frankly, because you were literally going to war with the mafia. Right. And I think Uber actually works better. You know, when you kind of, again, peel the onion back, I think Uber actually works better with the government than than most realize or, you know, what, what's yeah. often covered in yeah. the press. No, no, no question. Right. And so, so talk a little bit more about that, especially because, you know, the yeah, mainstream I, thought around. I, I, I get this a lot right now. Two, two questions. One is don't, shouldn't you have been nicer and kinder and gentler during all the ride share and stuff? Because then Uber wouldn't have been seen as to be as aggressive. Uh, and therefore when they had their other problems, it wouldn't have, the, the problem would have had, would not have sort of seen this to be a big issue. Right. And, you know, my answer is always, sure, I wish I could have been, but if I had asked for permission instead of begged for forgiveness, Uber wouldn't exist today, right? It just would have been this, like, startup that a few people would have heard of, and that would have been the end of it. So it was, just, it was an existential choice and question. That was the only way to get through it. And we're investors in a startup right now called Bird. It's an electric scooter startup that's getting a lot of attention and fastest company ever to a billion dollars. And there are a lot of corollaries between Uber and Bird, and we're going through the political process. And people keep assuming that I'm just going to do exactly what I did for Uber with Bird. And sometimes I am, but sometimes I'm not, because the strategy is very dependent on what we need to do to be able to succeed in a given market. And unlike with, with Uber, where we have to sort of beat back a cartel on taxi, while there's a lot of public policy issues around scooters, there's not an entrenched existing interest that we have to disrupt in the same way. And so I don't necessarily have to make the same set of choices, right? So, you know, in every single case, and my book gets into this a, a lot, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, please pick up a copy of it. Um, it's really a question of understanding the politics in every jurisdiction, what's the law on the books, who are you disrupting, what's their relative political power in that market, um, what does the policymaker ultimately care about, who do they take their orders from, um, and if you were to beg for forgiveness rather than ask for permission, what consequences could you face if it goes bad, right? Having a scooter confiscated is a lot less big of a deal than looking at a five-year jail sentence. Um, so, and it's, it's the ability to look at all those factors and analyze them for each jurisdiction that then sets the strategy. Uh, and sort of a one-size-fits-all, either we're going to be the startup that works really well with government or we're going to fight government. Like, that's stupid, right? Because there, there is no one-size-fits-all answer. Yes, they are more thoughtful. Yeah, I think, and, and I think two things from what you just said, right? So, 
you know, one, I want to talk about Bird and kind of the repeat player issue in that in a, in a moment. But the other piece I think is important is I think the aggression and the tactics of the way that the regulatory battle was fought often is conflated with the other issues that Uber have had, right? And and I do think they're separate issues, right? Both culturally, both, you know, strategically. One, you can make the argument, you know, from the tactics of going to the taxi commission, et cetera, that, you know, fighting, quote unquote, dirty was requisite for the landscape that was in and it was the right strategic decision. I think yep. sheer aggression, et cetera, in culture is something that should never be condoned and it's a completely separate issue, right? And, and there could yep. be overlaps in terms of governance of the company. And I think, you know, the strongest kind of leaders are the ones in which can recognize where strategically that aggression makes sense and culturally it doesn't. Um, but I do, I do think they're different issues. And I'm, and I'm curious, you know, having seen the company operate under Travis, as I mentioned, incredible in, you know, many facets, but, but frankly broken in others, right? And as an investor in a lot of other disruptive companies, I'm curious what your perspective is on, um, you know, founder personalities specifically, you know, because of your regulatory focus, right? So the companies you look at have, have to have in some sense a certain extra fight in them because they have that regulatory component, um, yep. And I think it's interesting. I have a view on this. I want to hear yours, which is you need a little bit of a rebel in the early days as a founder, but especially as you scale, you do need someone more, you know, like Adara or so, which is, you know, what they have now. I think there's a second side of that same coin, right, which is the way that, um, you know, the current situation between Uber and de Blasio, you can make the argument that his kind of motto and approach, you know, wasn't the right approach. Um, but there's a lot of talk about this right now, especially because, you know, of the drama surrounding, you know, Tesla and Elon Musk, obviously, you know, yeah. a bunch of companies yep. um, come out and kind so, of have these same dynamics. Yeah. So how do you so, think about totally, it? Right? So, so like, Dara never could have accomplished what Travis accomplished. Travis couldn't run Uber in the way that Dara does today, yep. right? There's a skill set of getting from zero to one, and yep. there's a skill set of running a from one massive to bureaucracy. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Dara's really good at running a bureaucracy. Is he highly innovative? Probably not. Um, could he take a really radical concept, break a cartel, and build a company? I, I doubt it. Um, but he's really good at kind of running the operations of a really big company and making investors feel good and regulators feel good and you know, all the different stakeholders feel good. And by the way, someone who still has a lot of equity in Uber, I'm happy for that yep. because that's going to produce the greatest return for my, for my shares. Um, but he couldn't have created that. And I think that effectively, you know, Elon, I think, is now in the same place, which is no one but him could have built Tesla. Right? Yep. But running it now is, is a different story. It's a really big company. It's a really highly valued company. You know, stock going down a little bit over the last year or two. And, um, and so you know, he may not have that skill set. And I think one of the challenges is people not knowing what they don't know. In fact, we asked earlier about what are we looking for in a founder. Um, one of the things that's really critical to me is it's one thing for a company to start to call me and say, hey, the shit just hit the fan. Can you help us? Right? You know, that occasionally might be interesting, but usually it's kind of like, look, if, if you didn't see any of this coming until now, I probably don't want your equity. Um, and it's the startups who come to me during their Series A and their seed to say, we understand that by succeeding, we're going to disrupt this industry, whatever it is. We understand they're powerful. We know that's going to cause problems. And we don't know how to deal with them. Would you want to invest? Would you want to work with us? And those are the ones that I tend to find interesting because they're so much more thoughtful on the front end, right? And if they're able to be thoughtful around that, odds are they to be thoughtful around a lot of other parts of their business too. Well, and especially, um, and if, they're, so, especially yeah. if they're able to isolate down and basically say, look, the expected value of getting through this one kind of tranche is very low, right? We need to equip ourselves with the right advisors, the right skill set, et cetera, to get through it. But man, if we get through it, there'll be a whole bunch of other issues and stuff under the hood that we have to you know, go through operationally as a business. But if we get on the other side of it, 
you know, the expected value goes significantly up. And if we solve this issue, right, if it's truly disruptive and bent on a regulatory issue, if we solve this, it's just going to open up a massive, massive value creation opportunity. I think that's totally right. So, you know, so we'll, we'll see, but that, it definitely has uh, impacted heavily the types of companies that we invest in, types of companies we work with, whose equity we want to take, uh, and all of that. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, but before we get to that and the other companies you guys are in, you know, Lemonade, Coinbase, Handy, a bunch, FanDuel, DraftKings, a bunch of these other ones, yeah. I want to get back to the uh, get back to Bird, which you were just talking about, right? And which sure. is specifically around that. You know, how do you think about the repeat player issue in all of this? Because you're gonna have you know you're gonna have a different playbook, you're gonna have a different skill set, and in some sense it's advantageous because obviously you guys have built up the knowledge and capabilities internally. Um, but the uh, the kind of flip side of that is you're going through these vicious battles with the same folks and basically you know, chipping yep. off a bit of the working relationship each time in your ring. So what's your experience been with politicians on that front? And you know, how, do you, how do you guys think through that? Yeah, so I have a very uh, probably different perspective than anyone else that you get on this podcast who's a lobbyist or a consultant or a strategist or whatever else, which is I don't think it matters. Because if you take mm-hmm. the fundamental thesis that we started out talking about, Every politician makes every decision solely based on what is best for them politically, mm, what enhances their chance of re-election. That's it, right? Loyalty, by and large, doesn't matter. Friendship doesn't matter. If they're afraid of you or if they need you, they're going to do what you want them to do. If they don't, they won't. So uh, the way I view it is it doesn't matter whether or not we're friends with these people or they like us or they hate us or they're scared of us or they're, they love us. Um, what really matters is are we able to understand what the right incentives are for this particular issue, and can we change those, right? Or can we impact them? Can we magnify them? Whatever we need to do, that's going to determine at the end of the day, right? Vastly more so than like, oh, this person likes me. I mean, you know, anyone whose whole business is based solely on relationships at the end of the day, they have very limited business, and they're living totally at the mercy and the whims uh, of these politicians uh, who just have to bestow their favor on them. You know, that's not a, a way that I'm willing to live. That's interesting. It's interesting because if you if you just simplify it down to the core incentive structure, I, I agree, right? I, I think the the kind of common parlance around this is, you know, it matters. It's a repeat player game, working relationships, et cetera. But if you simplify the framework down to, you know, what the core incentive is, and that's kind of your true belief, right? They'll do anything to get elected. It doesn't really matter because every every issue that can be brought up can have a different impact out, outcome and impact on on that end deliverable for them. It's interesting. So let's let's switch let's switch gears back, right? Let's talk about a couple of the other companies you, you guys are in: Lemonade, Fanduel, yeah. you know, Coinbase. I mentioned them, and I want to take sure. a little bit of a step back because what I think is interesting is when you think of venture funds, you know, typically in kind of today's landscape, right? You think about it in either stages, you know, seed, Series A, growth, etc., or you think about them, you know, based on business models, B two B, B two C. You think about them in verticals. You know, some of the companies I just mentioned, they're in insurance, esports, marketplace for cleaning, right? Handy, crypto, yep. all, all over the place, yep. right? And yep. I think traditionally startups were thought of as very tech insular. And now, you know, every startup is, of course, tech enabled, but especially the big ones, you know, are trying to disrupt some sort of external industry, right? Some sort of habit that that exists. And I think part of the way you guys have been able to invest in companies that have a very heavy regulatory fight on the horizon is is actually an interesting filter that probably pushes you to even more disruptive companies with lower probabilities of success, but you know higher values. Frankly, if they work out, and venture is a home run grand slam game, right? So it's that's that's what it's about, anyways. So how do you? I'm curious to get your perspective on how do you think about the state of startups and overlap of regulatory issues 
in the most innovative companies? And then a secondary question, what do you think most entrepreneurs miss when thinking about regulatory issues early on? Yeah, so I'm going to start backwards. Um, for years, after I started working with Uber, it didn't take me that long to say, A, this is fun, and B, this is lucrative, right? Well, obviously, there's only one Uber, we may never invest in anything again, <laughs> one has the same return. Um, I wanted to work with other startups, and I would go see other startups, and I'd say, hey, listen, you're in this sector, if you succeed, here's who you're disrupting, here's their political power, here's what it's due to you, here's how you can fight back, and I'm happy to do it uh, in return for equity, quite frankly, not even really knowing what that meant at the time, right? You know, Trav, I just signed what Travis put in front of me. Luckily, he was really fair to me, but he didn't have to be. Um, so I didn't even know how to evaluate companies as to whether or not I'd want their equity. I just thought, oh, equity is a good thing. Um, and, and the typical response I would get was like, you don't understand. I went to state. I was in Y Combinator. John Doerr's on my board. And when those stupid regulators see how smart I am, they're going to do whatever I want. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of laugh and say policy doesn't work that way. But the, the combination of arrogance plus not knowing what they don't know um, was so prevalent in the Valley and in tech for a long time that it really created lots of regulatory problems that didn't have to happen. And it was only when Uber and Airbnb and those other startups having such big public fights that startups started to realize, okay, we got to take this stuff more seriously. We have to be more thoughtful about it. Um, but even today, you know, there are companies that we work with and meet with that really understand that they need to be thoughtful about this and that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution and that just because everyone's always told them how special they are or because they raised $100 million doesn't even know anything about politics. And there are others that don't. And one of the things that I try to glean really early on before we deploy capital or before we take someone's equity to work with them um, is what they're like. And if I think, they're gonna, if, I think if they're going to be like that stereotype, I have no interest in being involved with them at all. So to, to me, that's, that's kind of how I approach it. The ones who are innovative and thoughtful Kind of what we discussed earlier, which is they get that their success by definition means they're going to be regulated. Right? We did some study with other that the Fortune 200 and 82 percent of the companies on there were either directly or indirectly regulated by government. Right? So if you're a total SaaS-based B2B company, like you don't need us. Right? But everyone else effectively comes into contact with politics one way or another, um, and understanding that, and understanding that every single situation, every jurisdiction. Um, calls for a different approach. Like, take, take Lemonade's example. It's a chapter in my book about this. The um, fight in New York was basically forcing Cuomo to force his Department of Financial Services to give us a license by creating so many political disincentives for Cuomo to keep blocking us that eventually it just made it was easier to just let us do what we wanted, and that's how we got through. Right? Whereas in Florida, we had to pass the bill. In California, there was nothing nefarious, but we just had to work through the bureaucracy and we did. In Texas, they were totally true to their reputation of, like, open for business, and basically walked in and they handed us a license. Um, so it, it, it really varies, um, even for the same company from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And I think the founders who understand that, A, I need to deal with this stuff, and B, there's no one-size-fits-all approach, and I have to be thoughtful about it, and I have to find people who are thoughtful about this, those are the ones who succeed. And so other than right, having the right founder personality, having the thoughtfulness right, to recognize that this is not you know, kind of a minor nit of an issue, but it, it actually is a major strategic issue. And it's, it's interesting. I've, I've talked with a lot of folks, um, a lot of, a lot of, as you see a lot of folks coming out of kind of the law firm partner ranks and coming in and becoming GCs of these really interesting tech companies, which was you know, not really a, a famous career path before, but is one now in that it makes sense from the perspective that a lot of these kinds of regulatory legal issues are actually becoming, you know, 
front-facing strategic issues that have implications on the business model, as opposed to just back office kind of legal legal operations at a company. How do you how do you think about you know what's sort of the correlation between the startups that have an outsized chance at success and then um, the ones that actually break through right when faced with a strong regulatory headwind? So when I look at yeah. DraftKings, Uber, yeah. right, they've got super strong user bases, and I think. I feel like that's something that's beyond business model, founder fit, right? Is that is that a tell typically of? It's a few things. So yeah. one is, yeah, I mean, I, all the time, founders say, do, do for us, we did for Uber, right? Yeah. And I have to explain yeah. kind of nicely. And it's not that simple, right? <laughs> there are startups for whom people will really advocate, and there's startups for whom they won't, and there are times where they will advocate, but it's useless. We take Airbnb, and they're not, we never worked with them or invested in them, but they have a real challenge with grassroots because by definition, all the scale in their business is on the guest side. Yep. Guests, by definition, don't live in the jurisdiction yeah. that they're staying in. Right. Right? Be pretty weird to like go to an Airbnb and be three bucks <laughs> in your apartment. Um, so, if I'm a state senator from Brooklyn and I'm looking at anti Airbnb legislation, and some guy from Stockholm, me, I was maybe had a lovely time in an Airbnb in my district, like, who cares a shit? Yeah. Right? Doesn't matter. You can't vote. Um, so, even sometimes you have products people really like, like Airbnb. And yet the politics don't work. So there are only some companies for whom you can really mobilize customers. Uh, and those are often a good sign of, of, of the ability to success. But there are some other factors, too. So, for example, there's a chapter in the book about a startup called My Table, which was a kitchen sharing startup. The idea would be, like, if you made a platter of lasagna but you live alone, you could put the rest on a platform and sell it to somebody else. Um, I never totally understood why that would be appealing to people, but I guess millennials have a different perspective than I do on Massive health concern. Absolutely. Yeah, because that's legitimate, right? So, and obviously, government can't go inspect everyone's home kitchen all of a sudden. So, I had some ideas around how we could reshape the the regulatory framework where we could maybe like purchase all the ingredients from a centralized inspected location. Maybe we could live stream preparation. I mean, I had some ideas that I thought were interesting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what we had to disrupt was so significant, and the companies in the States were so small and had so little funding. That before we could achieve anything, they all went broke, right? Yep. Um, so, so part of the lesson is: is the fight winnable? I mean, there are times where we see a company and a founder seems great, the TAM is great, the vision is great, but I just don't think it's a winnable fight from a political perspective. Uh, and I'm willing to take on plenty of loot. Like by definition, I assume we're going to invest in a lot of stuff that's going to fail. So it's you know, sure. we're pretty risk friendly. But still, if I know this isn't winnable, there's no point in us getting involved in the first place. So. Some of it is how motivated are customers that get for you. Some of it is how good are the founders, how thoughtful are they, and how forward-thinking are they. But some of it also is just what are you trying to do here, and is this feasible or not? And where it gets really interesting is in spaces where there are total new areas, like crypto or drones or autonomous vehicles, where it's, it's less about disrupting and attracting interest, and it's more going into a whole new world where there is no regulation in the first place and trying to shape what it should be. And often, in those cases, it's less around pushing back on the entrenched interest of more competition, but more about trying to create thoughtful and the right legislation and regulation in the first place. So let, let's, let's, get back to, uh, let's get back to what we were talking about before, right? We, we started talking a little bit about um, you know, the blockchain mass mobile voting project. Um, I think it's fascinating, highly needed, right? It, blockchain is obviously uniquely positioned to help accomplish the goal 
we talked a little bit about it, and I, I think especially in light of you know the past couple you know, questions we've been talking through, it's especially relevant, right? From fixing, fixing purely fixing the inputs of the system. So you talked a little bit about how the project's already underway in West Virginia. What are you know shed a little bit more light on that use case and, and really the next steps uh, for the project? Yeah, yeah. So um, thanks for asking about it. It's kind of my, my passion project. Um, ultimately, I've got to do a couple of things. In the next couple of years, I have to demonstrate some proof of concept, right? So it's not unlike a startup itself. Yep. That this idea can work, that voting on the phones over blockchain is safe, that people will take advantage of it, and that it's a better way to, to run a democracy. Um, so on one hand, the fight ahead of us is intense, right? Probably the hardest disruption fight of all, because we're going to have opposition from, you know, all the insurance interests in the election industry who don't want to lose their monopoly on voting issues and things like that. All the different policy groups who are only worried about election security and, and don't really care about turnout. They just want to make sure that there's no risk whatsoever. Um, but more importantly, everyone in the system right now who has figured out how to succeed within the realm of the current system isn't going to want to make it happy, make it easier to have yeah. them to lose their jobs, right? Yep. So every politician, every union, every trade group, every lobbyist, um, now they can't say, I don't want people to vote, right? Because that sounds terrible. Yep. So they talk about hacking in Russia and this or that. Um, so all that creates a lot of problems. On the flip side, I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. They couldn't conceive of a world where you couldn't do something as fundamental as voting not on your phone, yep. right? Yep. Um, so I feel like over time, history will change and we'll get there. And I feel like if I don't do anything, it probably happens anyway in 20 to 25 years. And if I can do this well and, and succeed, we can expedite it and it happens in maybe 10 years. Um, so that's really the, the delta here, is that 10, 15-year differential between doing something and doing nothing. In the early stages, I just have to prove that it can work. So I didn't mind that West Virginia's pilot was very limited to just deploying military because it, it was still real. The vote still counted in real elections. Uh, and, you know, we were able to, to, to develop some proof of concept. Um, so there are other constituencies like that, like the disabled, for example, who it's hard to argue that you shouldn't make it easier for them to vote. It's hard for someone to get to the polling places. Um, they're a good constituency. People in really rural areas might have to drive 50 miles to get to a polling place. Um, things like that. So uh, start with those groups. I'd like to have geographic diversity. I was pretty happy that West Virginia was the first one because uh, I liked that it wasn't just sort of Vermont or Oregon or something like that. Yep. Um, and have uh, political diversity. You know, Matt Warner's a Republican. And I'm, I'm not, but I'm going to work with him on it. I also want to work with some Democrats and some independents. Uh, and, you know, just, and just start to kind of get buy-in from whether it's people listening to this podcast or – media or whoever else, and this is a good idea, and eventually building up support. And I think we were able to mobilize our customers for Uber to buy a taxi, only to mobilize the people writ large to overcome the system. And so what do you think What do you think is the tipping point to the inertia, right? So I, I buy the argument that, uh, so I, I buy a couple of points of the argument that you were making, right? So fundamentally, A, I believe in the idea. B, I also believe that it's it's an idea in one which uh, you're going to have everybody coming after you, right? Because insofar as, you know, at the top line will say, you know, of course we want everybody to vote. There's the reality of the underlying incentive structure like we've talked about, you know, multiple times, right, in this conversation. So I, I, I buy that the approach is to do, you know, proof of concept. You go into certain geographies. You go after certain um, kind of political groups, right, or groups of folks, right, disabled, et cetera, that you can make voting easier for. 
what do you anticipate? I anticipate at some point in time, you know, you check the boxes on those, you get a couple electorates, you get uh, both by demographic type as well as region. And then there's really that tipping point, which is, okay, you know, okay, Bradley, this isn't just a, you know, cute little idea for, you know, 50,000 people anymore. Now you're actually trying to make this at scale. And I feel like that's, that's the point at which when people up until now, proof of concept, everybody's behind it, innovative ideas, right? But as soon as you try to tip the balance into this is going to be the mainstream thing, that's when I think the fight comes. So what do you, what do you see as that kind of tipping point? It's funny, you're the first person to recognize the thing. In this case, going from zero to one may be a little easier than going from one, one to end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or whatever it is. Um, and so here's right. In a couple of years, it has to be bigger than me, right? There has to be other groups, other foundations, other philanthropists who want to take up the cause. Um, there has to be momentum to run legislation in different states that allow for mobile voting to happen. Um, there have to be, you know, different constituencies saying this is a good idea. We support it. We want to see it happen. And he, and he pundits and editorial boards and columnists and others say, are starting to argue for it. Um, if, if, if it doesn't scale beyond one person's sort of ideas and money and energy, it's not going to work, right? Yep. Um, I probably have enough bandwidth and enough money because I'm paying for the state to administer the election costs. So it's, it's not inexpensive, but luckily I can afford it. Um, I can't pay for all the merits of the election. Exactly. I can put in, you know, even if I put in over time $50 million, it's still not that much money, right? Right. Uh, like me. Um, so ultimately, if, if I could never make it bigger than me, and if it's just people like you interviewing me, um, and that's all it is, it's not going to work, right? So um, that's why I spent you know, a huge amount of time just proselytizing on this issue and talking to reporters and talking to groups and giving speeches and writing op-eds because I need the idea to catch on. If it catches on, eventually it's on a life of its own, and I think it's destined to work, but if it doesn't, it's not going to work, or at least not for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and we'll have to, I'm going to book you for, you know, a year from now, and we're going to talk about the progress of this, because I think this could be its whole own conversation. I want to dive really deeply into the idea in the future, because there's there's a lot of interesting elements, especially when you start talking about it from a technology perspective, right, from the playbook perspective, how to think about actually scaling this, you know, beyond beyond one person. But before I let you go, you know, last question, and I'd be remiss not to ask you, you know, on your, on your thoughts, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. What are your thoughts on 2020? You know, do you think your old boss, Mike Bloomberg's got a got a run back in him? You know, how do you see the how do you see the landscape playing out? Uh, so yeah, so uh, a few things. So number one, on, on Mike specifically, I answered I don't I don't know. Um, there's a chapter in the book about 2016 and the campaign that I put together to run him as an independent, um, and I think we had a viable path forward. Obviously, a triple bank shot because independent is number one in the presidency, but I thought that it made sense. Um, 2020, I think running independence would be a lot harder because of Trump. People are so polarized, either they love him or they hate him, that the notion of something in the middle, uh, I think, is a lot less appealing than it would have been a couple of years ago. And so the reason that all the speculation on Mike came up is because he said, well, if I ran, he would be the Democrat. Not that he was saying, I'm going to run. He was just basically recognizing the reality of the path for independent probably isn't there in 2020. But there's a man who's booked for the presidential election three times with It's not like it's not like his mind. Um, obviously, he has the credibility and resources to mount a race if he wants to do it. Um, now, could Mike win as a Democrat? I don't know. Um, is he the most qualified person? Yep. Is he the most independent person? Yep. Um, 
Is he going to paint or all the different constituencies and special interests that control a lot of votes in the Democratic primary? Nope. Um, and so whether someone like that can get through, I think, is very much an open question. Um, but more broadly speaking, it seems to me that if you look at this century, every time the Democrats have nominated a career politician, so Gore, Kerry, Hillary, they've lost. Right? The public has made it abundantly clear they don't want someone who's planning out this race since they're great. Uh, and so, for me, you know, I just think basically that anyone who listens to this podcast is probably going to be preferable in my mind to Trump being president. Democrats um, have to nominate someone who's not a career politician um, and doesn't fall into that same trap, which is going to be hard because that's what the party's comfortable with, that's who the party is, right? So, either that comes from the left wing ideological part of the party, so a Sanders or Warren, not my politics, also take them over Trump, or it's someone from outside the mix, like a Bloomberg or a Howard Schultz. Or it's a mayor like an Eric Garcetti or Mitch Landrew. But it's, it's going to have to be someone who's a little different than the last couple of candidates. Because when we have that, they don't win. And the one time that we had a non-traditional candidate, Barack Obama, Democrats won, right? Um, so, so I think it's really, really critical uh, that, the, uh, that the Democrats look at this and say, it, we can't just run back the same playbook that we always do. Yeah. Well, Bradley, this has been you know really interesting conversation. I'm glad you were able to make the time. You know, for our listeners, make sure you order the Fixer off of Amazon. Super enthralling read of uh, a lot of the heated technology regulatory battles that we discussed today. And we'll we'll definitely have to have you on again. You know, in in yeah, the next you. six to nine months, I think a lot of these issues we talked about it's it's really only the start of them. So you know, thanks again for joining us. Really cool. enjoyed having thanks, you on. Thanks for having me. Really fun.